Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello, I'm Peter Tufano, and you're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times from the University of Oxford's Said Business School. This is a special series of events and conversations recorded during the lockdown that aims to encourage and promote new thinking when we need it the most. We need to reflect more systematically, lead more adaptively, and experiment more in our practices. Leadership in Extraordinary Times draws on the school's research and expertise to help equip leaders for the challenges we face. In this episode, Dr. Peter Drobeck and Dr. Eleanor Murray discuss COVID-19, and in particular, the issues of preparedness, resilience, and the future of public health. Peter Drobeck is a global health physician and he's the director of the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford Said. For over a decade before joining the business school, Peter played a key role in transforming Rwanda's health system. Eleanor Murray is a senior fellow in management practice here at Said Business School, and her area of research explores large-scale change processes, especially the challenges of delivering integrated healthcare systems. She's a healthcare expert. We begin by rewinding to the beginning of the coronavirus crisis, How did we get here? Here's Peter Drobeck. Many of us in global health have been saying for a long time that a global pandemic is not a matter of if, but when. We've seen a number of epidemics that that have become global threats over the last couple of decades. You know, they've been around sort of as long as time, but but the frequency with which we're seeing emerging infectious diseases has been increasing. And this is because of globalization, urbanization, and climate change. So many of us predicted it. Of course, you just never know exactly which pathogen and exactly when it's going to happen. And obviously, we were all caught somewhat by surprise when, when this novel coronavirus really swept the globe. So just to refresh everyone's memories, this is a virus that appeared to jump over from some animal species. We're not sure which, into humans in a place called Wuhan, China. Uh, And and that emerged, we think, in November uh, or so of last year, of 2019. And in the course of then December, there was a cluster of sort of mysterious pneumonias uh, in and around Wuhan that were bringing people down. By the end of the month, a new species of coronavirus had been detected new for humans. And within a couple of weeks, actually, its genetic sequence was completed and then published around the world. Since then, unfortunately, we saw dramatic spread across China uh, and then and then across the world. And it's really remarkable when you think that this is something that's only been with us for a few months. And what sets this apart is that, first of all, there's no immunity. None of us have any immunity to this particular virus because it's new. Uh, and so there's no protection kind of built in. It appears to be extremely contagious or infectious, uh, really much like influenza, um, which affects tens of millions of people every year because it is so contagious. And importantly, it seems to spread even before a person starts having symptoms. And so even if you're trying to test and isolate people once they start to get sick, they may have already infected other people. We've seen interesting responses in different parts of the world. 
Some countries have been very successful in sort of stemming the tide and, and beating back the tide of this virus. And others, of course, have, have done just the opposite. China ultimately implemented an unprecedented lockdown, the probably largest and strictest in modern history, where you know hundreds of millions of people were essentially on a very strict lockdown. And that's a blunt instrument, but was successful. Other countries in the region, like South Korea and Singapore, were able to use widespread testing and really smart public health measures to nip things in the bud before they got out of hand. And all of those are countries that were kind of on high alert because of, you know, SARS, a, a similar epidemic that hit us about 15 years ago. In the West, we were really caught flat-footed, and I think it'll be interesting for us to explore kind of what happened and what went wrong. There was a sense of otherness, and it was too far away, and there wasn't a chance it was going to come over here. When you look back, all the warning signs were there in January that this had all the makings of a real pandemic, um, the potential to spread globally. And when, uh, when in the U.S. and the U.K. and much of Europe, we should have been preparing and buying ourselves time, unfortunately, we were downplaying the risks. And, um, and that's really come back to bite us. What we see is this kind of exponential acceleration in the number of cases. So rather than going from 10 to 20 to 30, you go from 10 to hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands and so on. And we're kind of in the grip of that. In terms of mortality or case fatality rates, with flu, it's about 0.1% of people infected ultimately pass away, which is quite low. And so we see an extraordinary number of cases every year seasonally, you know, a modest percentage of deaths, but it still it ends up being quite a large number. In the UK, it's on average about 17,000 deaths per year uh, in a country of about 66 million. What normally should be done and, and what a hundred years of public health practice would tell us uh, and, and the lessons from the countries that did this well early on in January is that when you start to see cases that uh, widespread testing, testing everybody with symptoms and isolating them and then, and then finding out all the people that they've been in contact with in the previous couple of weeks and testing and following them and pulling them out of circulation can break chains of transmission. And you're able to actually trace chains of transmission from person to person to person. When you can do that successfully, you can interrupt those chains of transmission. You can also understand where the hotspots of infection are. In South Korea, example, they didn't have to shut down the entire country because they were able to identify specific localities, specific schools or specific hotspots and, and try to cordon those areas off without these kind of blunt instruments. Unfortunately, here in the UK, we didn't do that. The US, of course, famously um, had, a, had a big um, sort of cock up with the development of their own tests rather than using other tests and, and, and got about two months behind. So what happened was the genie kind of escaped the bottle and we saw widespread community transmission before we really got our public health systems up and running. And so what this suggests is that we just didn't have the preparedness that we, we needed um, to do so. What you need is that surveillance and early detection response where the infrastructure and the tracking systems and the surveillance systems are already in place so that you can spring into action at the early signs. Um, and it's remarkable that in the wealthiest countries in the world and the U.S. has the most expensive healthcare system in the world that such things didn't exist. So that's the public health overview from Peter. What's the business perspective? How did we get into this situation in terms of the business collapse and employment fears we're facing today? Eleanor Murray. So most businesses do have some sort of business continuity plan to respond to a range of threats, whether it's from natural disasters to cyber attacks. 
But as Peter said, in this situation, the reality is that most business continuity plans just simply weren't sufficient for the scale and the duration um, of this pandemic as we're seeing it unfold. As Peter's saying, this is partly because the pandemic, um, this sort of level of severe pandemic, um, was last seen in 1918 to 19, over 100 years ago. And subsequent pandemics um, that we've had in 1957 and 1968, and the most recent one, the H1N1 pandemic in 2009, did have lower mortality rates. And so I think businesses tend to plan with what's in their living memory. And so just simply um, the anticipation of the consequence of the level of uh, contagion of the virus wasn't anticipated. Um, so I think in some ways we are dealing with a once in a century crisis, um, which is likely to have a very profound economic impact. But because of the lack of planning that Peter's alluded to, we haven't um, been able to anticipate and prepare sufficiently, although some countries have managed that. Um, so we've witnessed this partly with the physical distancing we've seen, um, which is imposed lockdowns through over 70 countries, um, which has affected 2.5 billion people. And this has had, just through the nature of um, the restrictions on travel, it's had a huge impact on the aviation and tourism industries and the restrictions of movements of people's movements have affected most other sectors, particularly retail manufacturing and the hospitality industries. And I think we are beginning to see the effect on the resilience of the labour market. So as businesses are starting to lay off employees, the unemployment claims are beginning to rise. We know that in the US, there have been the highest reported figure of 3.3 million unemployment claims just in one week. And here in the UK, we've had nearly 1 million claims um, for universal credit in the last fortnight. So although we know that European governments have provided some support packages with loans and tax relief, they haven't necessarily been sufficient for small and medium-sized businesses who may be particularly affected because of their limited cash flow and uh, they may not be able to access the government funds uh, quickly enough. So it's potentially creating a really problematic situation for business generally. I think we've seen the full spectrum of business preparedness in response to this crisis. Um, some businesses that were already facing difficulties and failing to cope with the challenging market conditions have already gone into administration and become early casualties of the pandemic. Uh, other business sectors, particularly aviation and tourism and hospitality and fashion, are experiencing significant challenges as trade slows down owing to the number of people in lockdowns. And uh, they're going to be looking to government support to help them through. But we have seen other businesses really rapidly reorientate themselves, showing remarkable sort of foresight and adaptability, embracing digital technologies to support working at home, or alternative manufacturing processes like 3D printing. And these uh, businesses have rapidly been able to reorientate their business models um, to meet immediate needs such as food supply, um, protective equipment, medical equipment that are needed in this pandemic. Um, and we've seen some really adaptive practices. We've seen entrepreneurs providing open source designs for some of this equipment. Uh, large corporates getting involved. We've seen, for example, Dyson transitioning from vacuum cleaners to ventilators. We've seen LVMH, the French perfumier, distilling hand sanitizer, and we've seen Gap and Ralph Lauren making medical gowns and face masks. So we have seen really both aspects of uh, a business response and uh, levels of preparedness. So having explored how we got here, how do we get out? From a public health perspective, lockdown is not a solution, says Peter Drobeck. 
lockdown is a blunt instrument to buy us time, right? This protects our health services from getting overwhelmed, and that would, of course, drive mortality up even further uh, and, and cause all other kinds of casualties, and then gives us time to make a plan for how to get out of this. So one of the things we need to bear in mind is that the ultimate solution may only come when we have a vaccine against this virus. There's never been a vaccine against any coronavirus thus far. Guinness Book of World Records time for a new vaccine developed from start to finish is probably about five years. We're anticipating 12 to 18 months here if all goes well. There's an extraordinary effort underway to look at both vaccines and treatments. So what we really need to start thinking about is a plan for what's going to happen over the next approximately 12 to 18 months where we can keep this under control because if we relax too soon, um, there's a very high risk of a second surge in infections, just as there was with Spanish flu 100 years ago. But we can't go on like this either. You know, the impacts will be extraordinary if we remained in lockdown for months and months and months. So we're going to need to be able to find some kind of middle ground to begin to open up. And we're getting lessons from the places that are a bit ahead of us, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and now China. So what does it entail briefly? Testing, testing, testing. You have to go back to first principles and say, we need to be able to get every single person who might be positive tested and out of circulation, follow their contacts, etc. cetera. Um, that's gonna be extremely important. Uh, a second piece is gonna be finding ways to measure who might have immunity, some degree of immunity from having already had and recovered from infection. We don't know exactly how good that immunity is or how long it lasts, but there's good reason to think that if you've had it and recovered, you're not at risk of getting it again in the short term. So all the people who have been infected maybe then can go back to work. And that's especially important for health workers and other key workers. But we're not going to get back to normal kinds of free movements, fully open travel and economy um, anytime soon. I think it's going to be a little bit of a learning process. From a business point of view, we know that firms are facing significant challenges. Consumer spending power is constrained as a result of layoffs. Unemployment is at historic levels. And global supply chains may take time to recover because of border controls and factory closures. A key finding from Eleanor Murray's research on resilience is businesses don't bounce back. Although the temptation for businesses is to revert to business as usual before the crisis, they go back to pre-crisis conditions, um, the reality is if they're truly resilient, they're likely to bounce forward um, by integrating learning from the crisis into their everyday operations and also having the capacity and the capability to adapt in anticipation of what the new economic environment is likely to look like. And well, I think we can expect it to look quite different with the potential economic impact and the likelihood for a downturn as well. So I think one of the challenges for business leaders is to balance coping with the day-to-day -day pressures of the crisis, which might include sort of providing responsive leadership to many stakeholders um, or dealing with immediate operational issues with an anticipatory approach that tries to look forward amidst all the uncertainty and um, tries to spot new opportunities or experimentation um, or collaborations that might help them to build new business in the face of a new, a new sort of certainty. We've seen this in this crisis with the rapid adoption of new technologies across the globe to support remote working such as Zoom and Microsoft Teams and uh, rapid manufacturing techniques such as 3D printing. So one of the challenges for organisations is can they capitalise 
on the use of some of these digital technologies and some of the new innovations that have come out of this crisis in terms of building their business going forward. And what about learning for healthcare systems? I think one of the features of this crisis is that um, certainly hearing directly from healthcare workers is that the crisis is in some ways greatly reduced the amount of bureaucracy and silo working that tends to be evident in healthcare when it's functioning in a sort of routine setting. And it's actually enabled really rapid improvements to take place um, that couldn't have been thought possible in normal everyday operations. Um, so we've seen some really positive steps. Um, we've seen GPs moving to telephone consultations, which is something that was potentially quite problematic for some GPs in the past. Um, we've seen the rapid creation of new capacity through temporary facilities such as the UK Nightingale Hospital and the rapid expansion of uh, the workforce with recent retirees and final year medical and nursing students. However, other aspects for healthcare seem to be more problematic. Peter's referred to the fact that there's been significant bureaucratic constraints in the rapid scaling up of testing and uh, the ability to move protective equipment to where it's needed has been problematic. So the supply chain's not necessarily working as well as they could do. So I think in the longer term, the learning that can be taken from this is that the organisation of healthcare needs to become less bureaucratic um, there needs to be greater encouragement of small-scale experimentation and developing these sort of collaborations across traditional boundaries such as primary and secondary care and really embracing technological solutions which has um, happened in pockets but has not been universally applicable in healthcare. So I think the crisis has uh, forced healthcare leaders to look at adopting these new technologies where previously there was this really significant bureaucracy preventing their adoption. So what do Peter and Eleanor think are the lessons more generally for leaders? Trust, transparency, and the ability to adapt quickly to bring about collective action are key. One of the things I reflect on every single day is that even though it seems obvious, um, it's in times of crisis that you see how important leadership is and looking at the different kinds of responses and different outcomes in different places, it's been evident. I think there's real correlation. You, you look at the difference between South Korea, between New Zealand, for example, where there was a credible government with high levels of trust, um, but also a, a strong, transparent face to this. Uh, and I think a really transparent decision-making process that brings people together, right? One thing that's very clear is that that a pandemic response can't be all top-down. It actually requires collective action. We're all making sacrifices right now by staying in our homes and um, you know, sacrificing economic activity and, and many, many other things. And so we need to be able to buy in that someone's got our backs and that we know this is going to work and that it's going to be worth it. You contrast that with, for example, the, the U.S., where the, where the administration, the president there, ultimately denied this called it a hoax, get up in front of um, uh, the television cameras every day and kind of spew misinformation and didn't actually take charge in a way that says we need a coordinated national response to protect people. And that led to this kind of, you know, patchwork system where there was almost a race to the bottom and 50 states are actually competing with one another for scarce resources. It's really been bungled. And, and that very much, I think, goes back to, um, to, to leadership. I think this kind of crisis shows that in the 21st century, 
everything is interconnected, right? And problems like this and a lot of other challenges that we face, this is a dress rehearsal for climate change and lots of other big wicked problems. These are problems that transcend any one organization or business or country to tackle on their own. So the best leaders are able to work both within their organizations, but also beyond them and build coalitions together. And that's what we ultimately need to see here. Yeah, so I think um, in terms of encouraging leaders to be resilient in crises, firstly, I think it's important for leaders to remain curious and uh, not shut down their thinking too soon, really remain open to emerging conditions. I think secondly, they need to really, as Peter says, utilise their networks and not just work within their organisation, but beyond the organisation, utilising their networks to, as you say, build coalitions and engage not just with their employees, but also with their broader stakeholders. We might include investors and customers and the wider public. So really keep all lines of communication open and explain as best as they can where they're going, um, even though times are uncertain. And I think third, they need to take really decisive action based on the best evidence available. We've noticed that leaders who have taken time in making decisions or haven't been sufficiently adaptive quick enough, uh, they, where the businesses have tended to fail or do less well um, so taking decisive action and also coping with the sort of apparently too inconsistent sort of approaches a sort of a paradox situation coping with paradox and being able to balance seemingly inconsistent or contradictory factors at the same time because in this sort of complexity that we're seeing you often need to somehow make sense of two very contradictory issues on that note we opened up the conversation to our audience, joining us online around the world. The first question is about global best practice for balancing control of the virus with continuing economic activity. Which governments have got it right? I think the first thing is that um, it feels like maybe there's a trade-off between saving lives and saving the economy. I don't believe that to be the case. I think if we were to let this go and have the loss of life increase even further, it would destroy the stock market and it would destroy the economy even further. So I think it's a false choice. That said, we're of course inflicting real economic pain with the response that we're forced into. So to me, the first big lesson is that early and decisive action and even preparedness is really critical because this was not inevitable. Where we are in the UK, in the US, in much of Europe, in India, with lockdowns was not necessarily inevitable. South Korea never had a lockdown, Singapore never had a lockdown, etc. And so um, there, it is possible actually to address and to contain an outbreak like this and not sort of get to this point. So that's, I think, the first and most important thing. I'll pause there and let Eleanor have a crack at the question. Yeah, so I think, I mean, I agree with that. And I think um, the strategies that Singapore and South Korea have adopted in terms of um, a very rigorous testing approach um, as best practice seems to be the approach that's prevented the need for such constraints around lockdown and I think that's where the preparedness factors have uh, been problematic in being able to scale up the testing to the extent that they have needed to and I'm, I'm not totally sure of all the reasons for that but I think probably the fact that it's highly regulated and there's uh, potentially quite a lot of bureaucracy around that might have made it harder to actually scale up quicker. But certainly those countries have demonstrated what can be done with, with a really effective best practice testing approach. Next, a question for Peter. What are his thoughts on the comparatively low numbers of reported cases of COVID-19 in Africa? 
I don't know why yet. I don't think anybody does. Um, I wasn't quite expecting this. Many of us early on were were really fearful of the uh, the potential for this pandemic to hit um, Sub-Saharan Africa, in particular in many uh, in many countries in that region. Of course, the capacity for sort of advanced intensive medical care is pretty limited. Countries like Liberia have just a handful of ventilators in the entire country. So if you were to see a big outbreak with thousands of cases, the mortality rates could be uh, extraordinary. And that's something that I think we all still worry about. Why are the cases low um, up until now? Um, first off, some of it might be artificial because testing until recently has been fairly limited and even countries that have been working really hard at this and collaborating with China and elsewhere to get resources have not been testing as much as they would like. So it's possible there are more cases out there than we know about. Um, other possibilities have to do potentially with sort of climate, um, but again, in other warm weather places like the Middle East, we've seen um, a very significant outbreak, so I don't really buy that. Um, in the Southern Hemisphere, cases are starting to go up as they move into winter. The relatively younger distribution of the population, about half the um, population of many countries being uh, under 18 or 25, might have something to do with it because we know that younger people tend to be less affected and often are kind of asymptomatic. But when you get right down to it, I don't think anything explains it all or that we're out of the woods. I think, frankly, we're still very much early on in kind of the epidemic curve in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa and um, really need to remain vigilant because I think that we're going to start to see a real significant rise in cases. Last thing I would say, uh, you know, we've talked about the consequences of the lockdown economically, but imagine how difficult it is to do the kinds of social distancing we've been all asked to do. If you're a family living in extreme poverty, you know, really on the margins where you don't know where your next meal is coming from, it's not so easy just to stay home then. So the other real risk we, I think, face in Africa, if these kinds of measures need to be kept in place, is a whole lot of, of other suffering and starvation and potentially social unrest unless governments are able to step in and provide a safety net. We're going to close with some final thoughts from Peter and Elner on what I believe is going to be a crucial aspect of our recovery from this coronavirus pandemic, international collaboration. Because if this experience fosters a greater sense of global solidarity and urgency, it will give us a fighting chance of tackling climate change and inequality and all those other problems that we desperately need to address. Will the legacy of this battle against COVID-19 be the realization that we really are all in this together? One of the things that's really disturbed me is if you take a step back, right, the virus doesn't respect national boundaries. It doesn't care who we are, where we come from, what our politics are. None of us are going to be safe from this virus until all of us are safe, right? And so there's been a lot of focus on each country turning inwards and looking at its own needs and its own population and its own response. And that's short-sighted, especially when you see countries competing for scarce resources. What we need is a lot more global solidarity and global coordination and, and, and collective action. I think the World Health Organization has done a tremendous job with their kind of limited power in trying to engender that, but it's been challenging 
challenging. And so I think there has to be a lot more coming together. I think wealthy nations need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And that means addressing the pandemic within their own borders, but also understanding that countries in the global South, for example, are gonna need more support to be able to also address this. And it's in everyone's best interest that we do so. So I think that, you know, if you kind of look at the trend in the rising tide of nationalism around the world over the last couple of years, um, that only hurts us in the settings of an interconnected global problem like this. And I think we need to strengthen our mechanisms to act in a sort of supranational fashion. And beyond that, I think you could say the same goes true for businesses and civil society all needing to work together. I think what we do in the next months and perhaps year is really going to define this, this generation. And I think what's possible, is it going to pull us further apart or are we going to find ways to come together in ways that we haven't at a global level in a, in a, in a very long time? If we can, if we can get through this through global solidarity, coordinated collective action, we're seeing that on the innovation side, on the research and development side. That's where coordination and discovery is happening um, at a really extraordinary level. Politically, it's not happening yet. If we get this right, we'll be so much better positioned to confront the climate crisis and most of the other grand challenges we face in the in the 21st century and so i think there's a there's there's a roadmap for how we can work better together and also how we need to rethink some of our systems our economic systems our social systems in ways that are going to allow us to thrive more in an interdependent world in the in the 21st century Yes, I mean, one of, one of the um, features of this uh, pandemic has been the phased approach, you know, through with epidemics in different countries. And in a way that gives us the potential to actually collaborate. So as one, one country, for example, now China seems to be working through the worst of the virus from their point of view, you know, they're now starting to help other countries. Um, with supplies and uh, medical equipment and things. So I think there's something about us utilising the fact that the, the virus is sort of, the COVID is sort of phased throughout these different countries to actually um, ensure that once the peaks pass, there might be scope for certain countries helping other countries. And uh, particularly in terms of developing countries, you know, the situation in Africa, if they're still moving towards a peak, then there might be scope the developed countries to provide more support there and I agree with Peter about the fact that it will need countries to turn away from their sort of internal focus and look outward and see what needs to be done to benefit the whole global economy and humanity as well. We tend to think a lot about resilience being at an individual level, you know, how do we maintain our own resilience um, to potential problems and crises but um, there's definitely something to think about in terms of resilience both at an organizational level and to create resilience in a system and I think what this crisis has shown is that it's important to think about how we think about resilience in a systems perspective because as we've seen if you have countries acting in their own interest um, whether that's through the way they manage um, protective equipment or medical equipment and don't take a sufficiently collaborative approach, then that has a real impact on other countries, you know, in the whole way the system, the global economic system works. So it's really important, I think, to think about how organisations, how corporations, governments going forward act in a more collaborative way, build alliances um, and think about how they're going to act in relation to these broader issues like climate change from that perspective. And I think hopefully this crisis has shown that there is a way of acting globally um, in this sort of urgent situation. And if we can try and take that level of urgency into the climate change discussions and action, then that will be really important. 
My thanks to Peter Drobeck and to Eleanor Murray. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about the Leadership in Extraordinary Times series, visit OxfordAnswers.org. And while you're there, you'll also find episodes of Peter Drobeck's own podcast for Oxford Said called Reimagine, which is all about the visionaries who are in the business of building better futures. I'll leave you with a taster. It's easy to feel overwhelmed by the scale of the challenges facing humanity today. Right now, we're facing the worst pandemic the world has seen in a century. Meanwhile, all our other problems aren't going to magically disappear. You may think there's nothing any of us can do to reverse climate change, or create a more equitable economic system, or stop homelessness, or make healthcare a right, not a privilege. But there is. I'm Peter Drobak, and this is Reimagine a new and original podcast series from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford University's Side Business School. In this series, we're meeting people who are giving the system a shake. The visionaries, the disruptors, the world's problem solvers, who are taking up the challenge of fixing the bits of our world that are broken. As director of the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship in Oxford, I'm inspired by their stories on a daily basis. We hope you'll be inspired too because the people you'll hear in this series really are making the world a better place. We'll start with how to win the battle against the coronavirus. Do you want to see things differently? Then join me, Peter Drobak, for Reimagine, a podcast series about people who are inventing the future. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and head to oxfordanswers.org forward slash podcasts for more information.